Hello, and welcome to the Celtic History Podcast, episode six. Meanwhile, hello and welcome back. Sorry again for the delay in this episode. I've had some technical difficulties with the recording, but I've upgraded my equipment and I'm hoping that there is a noticeable difference in the sound quality going forward. Last time, we summarized the branch of Urnfield culture, which developed into Hallstatt A and B. And we peaked at the heights that they are headed for under the C and D periods in the early Iron Age. But before we go any further, we need to play a bit of catch up with the rest of the actors, which will play an important role in the dramatis personae of the Celtic story. As Hallstatt and later Latin culture develop, they will play an increasing role in the affairs of the world beyond Central Europe, and we will be unable to understand the development of their society and story without the context of the societies they interacted with. For simplicity, I have broken up today's episode into chapters. Uh, this was also a recommendation by a few listeners, so thank you very much. The feedback is alive and well. Thank you all. Um, I've also received some wonderful emails from listeners. Thank you very much who've contacted me personally to express how much they're enjoying the podcast and also with additional questions. For answers to these questions and additional updates about social media, upload schedule, etc., um, please stay tuned to the end of today's episode. Chapter 1. Bronze Age, Golden Age. I'm going to start around the 14th century BCE, at the very beginning of the Hallstatt period, and I'm also going to work from east to west vaguely. In the ancient Near East, in the late Bronze Age, their world was dominated by four major powers. The main two being Egypt and the Hittites, who were the most consistently powerful. And a power based in the east on the Tigris and Euphrates Valley, uh, modern-day Iraq. This is sometimes Babylon, sometimes Assyria, sometimes Elam. Uh, it does change. Uh, and later coming to prominence, the decentralized Mycenaean Greeks to the west of this sphere. Assyria will impact our story later in a peripheral manner, but we will touch on that. But in between these powers was also the independent island of Cyprus, who would occasionally fall under the sway one or the other of the larger powers. Cyprus, like Britain, was a major source of copper and tin. Other sources of copper and tin, making the all-important bronze, uh, were harder to access and further away. The other two being the Atlantic system we have already discussed and Afghanistan for tin slightly closer. These societies achieved a level of sophistication and complexity not seen again for another 500 plus years, and some would argue even later. These societies ran on what is known as a palace economy which relies heavily on a literate class of bureaucrats centralised in a palace complex, ruled over by a divine monarch, and often also supported by a powerful priesthood. Due to the complexity of these societies internally, they developed diplomatic trade links of equal sophistication as well as an elite chariot-based warrior class to be able to match each other on the field of battle. 
For a reference to this in popular literature, look no further than the puffed-up, armed-to-the-teeth warlords of the Iliad. Rather than the client system we've seen in our Indo-European tribal societies, we have an elite professional class of warriors whose entire lifestyle is based around training and preparing for war, supported by a bulk of levied peasants, all controlled by a centralised bureaucracy. And, of course, serving a divine monarch. This deviates from the warrior class of our tribal societies because they are serving the state rather than pledging themselves to individual decentralized warlords. So if you think, for example, medieval knights for the level of training and expense, but not so much the feudal system, you have a class whose entire lifestyle is for training and preparing for war. As we discussed last episode, chariots were the sports cars of their day. So, in order to support a style of warfare which relies on the chariot, you need a large, sophisticated, centralized state who can pool all the resources in its territory together for a singular purpose. So, to take perhaps the most well-known example first, let's look at Egypt. Egypt has two things which allow for civilizational success a massive food surplus, and movable wealth in the form of gold, but no native tin or even copper. The Hittites, however, had copper and were the power to most often control Cyprus's tin mines, but they have no gold nor the level of agricultural wealth of Egypt or the river valleys of Iraq. So, naturally, trade develops. And as these societies grew more powerful, they became more reliant on each other, and of course, the need for these societies to go to war when the trade stops. One of my favourite truisms in history is the great quote, when goods don't cross borders, armies do. What my Sinai offers to the puzzle were two things. One, the facilitated maritime trade. And two, with the raw goods they purchased, they manufactured these into products they could trade with the big two powers of the Aegean. The Mycenaeans' relationship with each power could vary, but the Mycenaeans are not as important to our story as their predecessors, the Dark Age and Classical Greeks, but are well worth introducing here nonetheless. Again, this is another example of how I'm going to skin over fascinating peoples which you really require their own podcasts, and in fact do have them, which I will recommend at the end of the episode. The power based in modern-day Iraq are not too relevant yet, but one thing that is relevant is that they are always looking for Mediterranean ports and were always rubbing up against the powers which controlled them. The people who did occupy the most valuable forts were the Phoenicians, who were the Canaanite people who occupied the area where modern-day Lebanon is located. Their specialization towards the end of the Bronze Age was maritime trade, and what they possessed, which the Mycenaeans appear not to have were links with the Tyrrhenian Sea, Corsica, Sardinia, and importantly for us, Etruria in Italy. We will return to these critical Western trade routes later. Chapter 2. Apocalypse. My father beholds the enemy's ships burned, and they did evil in my country. All my chariots are in the land of Hatti, 
all my ships in the land of Luca. The country is abandoned to itself. This famous inscription hails from the downfall of these once mighty empires. These paragons of civilization reduced to blasted anarchy. The initial causes for the collapse, however, may be far more mundane than this dramatic script implies. The most popular theory is that of systems collapse. The idea behind this theory is that when you have a system that is so interconnected and co-reliant that if any one element of the system fails, then the whole thing collapses. Something we should be a little bit worried about right now. What that first domino is, is often debated. But what is certain is that those complex power structures at the top were the first to go. Say, for example, a climatic shift or population changes led to the reduction in those all-important food surpluses. These highly religious peasants would then see their highly developed priestly class as not only not fulfilling their obligations, but if the gods are responsible for the weather and the job of the priesthood is to appease the gods, then perhaps the priests have angered the gods. Worse still, to use a Chinese phrase, perhaps our divine ruler has lost the mandate of heaven. System collapse often occurs when a key element in the system loses faith in that system. We see this in the late Western Roman Empire, for example, where increasingly independent landlords can no longer rely on the government for protection. They lose any interest in contributing manpower, resources, and tax to a government which no longer fulfills its primary function, that being the protection and welfare of its citizens. To keep this comparison going, we also see a reduction in these states' ability to protect their subjects with the arrival of the near-mythical Sea Peoples. Who and what these peoples are has never conclusively been proven, but it's most likely a combination of Western predatory raiders combined with revolts from people within the Empire and attacks from the fringes, such as the Libyans and Philistines. Some of these Western tribes that have been identified as sea peoples are from the Tyrrhenian Sea region, such as the Sickles, Nuragic tribes from Sardinia, and even perhaps the Proto-Villanovian tribes of northern Italy, which may be a hint at them travelling back down the trade routes in search of plunder when the goods stop flowing out of the Near East. Go back to the saying, when goods don't cross borders, armies do. And this may well be the case. You may ask what threat these seemingly smaller, less sophisticated people are to these mighty empires who can call upon massive centralized armies led by a warrior elite. But for an example of how difficult this can be for these centralized states, look no further than the first Viking raids into Western Europe. The Frankish state had huge difficulty dealing with these, for example, because smaller bands would strike everywhere that the grand armies of the emperor weren't. It took hundreds of years for these states to develop tactics to counter this, and again this situation led to the decreased influence of the central government and the strengthening of fragmented feudalism, which France would not recover from until Philip II in the high medieval period. Indeed, that too is what happened in the ancient Near East. The Hittites were wiped out within a generation, Egypt became a rump shadow of its former self, and Mycenae decentralized into the Greek Dark Age. 
the only power to eventually emerge greater than its former self was the Neo-Assyrian Empire in the early Iron Age. Chapter 3. Iron from the Ashes. Around the time these great Bronze Age states collapsed into themselves, we start to see the slow introduction of iron. Contrary to what you may assume, iron did not take over from bronze as a superior metal for a couple of centuries at least after its discovery, but once adopted, it rapidly took over bronze for tools and weapons. Primitive ironsmiths had a poor understanding of the basic properties of iron. The quality of early ironsmithing varied greatly. What really led to the later rapid adoption of iron was its relative availability compared with the component parts that make up bronze, something that we've discussed repeatedly since the start of the series. Iron ore also has a manageable, workable temperature at around 800 degrees. Iron ore is reduced to a spongy mass known as an iron bloom, which when constantly reheated and beaten, the waste slag will be driven out of the ore, which allows the remaining iron to be worked into an ingot. It appears first as a prestige good in the graves of pharaohs and Hittite kings, but slowly over time it becomes more and more widespread in its use. The Hittites used iron on a large scale, but after the collapse, the secrets of Hittite iron working were lost, and iron reverts to its prestige good until about the first millennium BCE. The first real state to use iron on a large scale in warfare are the Assyrians, who famously equipped every soldier with an iron weapon. This will be very important when we return to our story because the Hallstatt peoples use their mining, metallurgy, and geographic expertise to tap into this new and all-important resource. Iron tools lead also to increased agricultural efficiency, and we see civilization slowly starting to creep back in places like Greece, for example. The island of Euboea, west of Attica was the first part of Greece to bounce back in a noticeable way. The famous site at Lefkondi shows evidence of increased wealth relative to the rest of their former Mycenaean neighbours. Corsica and Sardinia also see a thriving culture with the construction of the great tower fortresses built by the Nuragic peoples of the island. They likely benefited too from the new importance of iron as these islands benefited from a large amount of native iron that they could trade to the east. Etruria, modern day Tuscany, also possesses a good deal of iron as well as other mineral wealth, particularly silver. Just while we're on this, I would uh, take a look at a map. Uh, I will post a map on the social media somewhere, but a very important region for us is going to be south-central Europe, where mainland Europe meets the Mediterranean, well, Adriatic and Tyrrhenian seas. So we're looking at northern Italy, Provence, Austria, Switzerland, Austria, and perhaps some of the upper Danube. Chapter 4. A Brave New World. The bouncing back of Mediterranean civilization and trade has two major peoples pushing it forward. 
The huge market of the Neo-Assyrian Empire and the pioneering and brilliant Phoenician seafarers who brought these goods from all over the Med to the thirsty Assyrian giant. In the period between 1200 and 900 BCE, the enterprising Phoenicians, who were already well-established as a trade and maritime people, developed a series of trade networks and nursed the Mediterranean back into a thriving community. Tyre and Sidon were the powers at the time, with Byblos being less prominent than in the past, and their latest enterprise started with colonies on southwest Cyprus. From here, the Phoenicians would develop trade links with the previously mentioned island of Euboa, and using their innovative Byrim ships, they ventured far afield back to the west to tap into the mineral wealth of Sardinia and Etruria. The Phoenicians themselves had purple dye from Tyre and cedar wood from Sidon, good for building ships, and of course, papyrus from Byblos. This is in fact the root of the word for Bible. In exchange, they acquired raw materials which in other places would be traded for finished manufactured goods. The village of Lifkondi, for example, manufactured distinctive geometric-style black-figure pottery, which came to be called Euboan pottery. Cyprus also managed a small red-figure pottery used to contain oils and perfumes and became a prestige good throughout the Mediterranean. Tracking items such as these is how we trace the Phoenician trade routes as Euboan black-figure and Cypriot red-figure appears in the regions we mentioned, which export raw materials such as iron, silver, and perhaps even salt. Remember that one for later. The Greeks too developed training outposts to help facilitate this trade, which is in fact pre the height of Greek colonization. It seems the relationship between the Phoenicians and the Greeks was more mutually supportive and beneficial at this point. The Greeks rightly praised the Phoenicians at this stage for attributing the adoption of their phonetic alphabet to the Phoenicians. Perhaps the Phoenicians aided the Greeks in this to help facilitate trade. Complex commercial activity relies on good record keeping, and since the fall of Mycenae, the Greeks had lost the ability to write. Such a cordial relationship was not to last, however, and as the Greeks were nursed back to strength by the lessons and wealth of their Phoenician friends, they soon became rivals, more than friends, and this led to the founding of of the colony of Pithecusae in the mid-8th century BCE, which is the first Greek colony in Italy. This colony sits near to modern-day Naples, and this allowed closer links with the newly prominent Etruscans. Chapter 5. Etruscan Origins. The Etruscans, you might say, are a people after our own hearts. As their assimilation and some would say active culling of their culture by the Romans has left us with an obscure and biased picture of the peoples who dominated central Italy long before Rome was a twinkle in Romulus's eye. Luckily, we have already covered the wider origin of other people in this area by their language. As mentioned in episode 4, War and Treasure, a portion of the Urnfield peoples may have crossed into the Po Valley and split the Proto-Italo-Celtic into Celtic and Italian language families, respectively. The Italian branch then may have split into the Liguarian, 
another Celtic language, and Proto-Italian, which led to Latin, Umbrian, Venetic, Sabetic, and Oscan. Etruscan, however, appears to be entirely local, which implies the Etruscans were not were native to Tuscany. Though the Etruscan language is non-Indo-European, it is widely accepted that the precursor of Etruscan culture was the Proto-Villanovian culture, which is the culture believed to have derived from the Urnfield peoples who crossed into the Po Valley and who are also believed to have introduced ironworking to the Italian peninsula. So, if you're confused, that's reassuring, because so am I. The information I've found is Villanovan culture is Indo-European and Etruscan is not. But also that the Etruscans are direct descendants and inheritors of Villanovan culture with no influx of new peoples. I can also see blatant influences um, towards uh, Indo-European culture. For example, the Etruscans' main god is also a sky father. If anyone can clarify this for me, it would be much appreciated. I am more than happy to do a bonus episode on the Patreon feed on Villanovan culture, as well as any other group we encounter at any stage of our journey, because I haven't even touched the mess that is the genetic evidence or how the classical sources tell us a completely different story. For now, all we need to know is that this meant there were language and trade connections to their north. The Etruscans were not a unified people by any means, but much like classical Greece, they were a cultural group made up of several competing city-states. Relations were sometimes friendly, but other times they would even ally with an outside power to fight each other. The Etruscans simply referred to themselves as the Rasena. The Etruscan civilization thrived based on mineral wealth in silver, high-quality manufactured goods, and a fair bit of agricultural wealth. This, paired with the aforementioned trade connections over the Alps into our Hallstatt heartland and a healthy penchant for seafaring, the Etruscans were the height of civilization from the 7th to the 4th centuries BCE. By now, we have roughly covered the events from the 13th century BCE, and now we're approaching the 7th century BCE, which is both the height of Etruscan and Hallstatt power. Not a coincidence. We're not going to cover Iberia or the Atlantic system in this episode, but it is worth mentioning a development which went on in the Baltic. Around the same period we have discussed so far in the podcast, the Indo-European peoples who migrated to the Baltic, northern Germany and Scandinavia, developed their own unique cultural zone. While there was much exchange and similarity between the various Bellbeaker and Urnfield cultures, we have also covered by the late Bronze Age there was somewhat of a boon known as the Nordic Bronze Age. The culture specifically along the Baltic coast benefited from what is known as the Amber Road. Amber is fossilized tree bark, and exceptionally rare, although it is found in abundance among the Baltic states. This was a prized good for jewellery and small vessels and statuettes. It's very pretty to look at. There is a road that heads directly south, all the way down to the Danube region, where the Hallstatt culture begins to thrive. This gives Hallstatt culture access and somewhat of a monopoly on another valued commodity which will be important for the next episode this is where we're going to leave off today 
with the Greeks starting to compete with the Phoenicians for far-reaching colonies, the Etruscans reaching heights which will only increase their appetite for luxury goods and sources for high-demand raw materials. And we will return to what's going on with our Hallstatt Celts next week. Okay, for those who are only interested in the podcast and have no interest in additional content, Patreon, etc., or what's going on with me, an upload schedule, now is your time to leave. Although I strongly advise you to stay. Okay, we all still here? Good, that's what I like to hear. So I've been working on a number of things in the background to enhance the experience of the podcast. There are many podcasts which cover the culture and some of the history of the Celtic peoples, but it's never been done in a chronological order the way that I'm doing it. Speaking of which, at this point, I want to shout out Sean Esther Powell's Celtic Myths and Legends podcast, which is an excellent podcast, which was launched a bit before mine, covering uh, the various culture, myths, legends, and stories from Celtic culture, and mainly focused on the British Isles, as far as I can tell. Unfortunately, upon discovering this podcast, I realized that Sean and I share the same intro music. So any uh, musicians out there, I'm currently hunting for new intro music because she launched her podcast first. And as far as I'm concerned, that means I should be the one to change it. But definitely check her out if you're uh, if your thirst for uh, Celtic myths and culture uh, is not satisfied by this podcast. However, on that, I find myself in a position, due to the fact that Celtic history is so long, that I myself am not satisfied that I am covering all the areas I wish to. We've started at the very genesis of Celtic culture, and we are five episodes in as of last episode, and we've only just reached the Hallstatt Celts, and there is a long way to go. I know many of my uh, American, uh, Australian, and British Isles listeners are probably most interested in Celtic history around the British Isles, as that is where their heritage is, and indeed my own. So, one of my solutions to this is I am launching both a Patreon, which will have requested member-only episodes, and I'm also launching a YouTube channel. Now, the idea behind the YouTube channel, I mean, I will probably use it for many, many things, but at the moment I'm uploading some historical gaming content which provides a enjoyable backdrop of historical games which are relevant to Celtic history, um, which provides some interesting visuals um, and gameplay, as well as some commentary on the context and the history which the game is trying to portray. At the moment, uh, with a friend of mine, I am doing a co-op campaign on Total War Rome 2, Divide It Paramod, which increases the historicity, um, and is particularly around the aesthetic and the combat mechanics of the units. Uh, so that's certainly interesting for all you gamers out there, or those who you know are just interested in seeing some visual representations of Celts. You are more than welcome. Uh, I'm still editing that series um, because I'm hoping to have a steady upload schedule with it so people aren't waiting too long. I uh, also plan on playing 
uh, Crusader Kings, for example, uh, and many other games, uh, including Thrones of Britannia, uh, which will give me the opportunity to talk about the fascinating Dark Age history. I mean, it's so far away, but I am just buzzing to talk about Dark Age Celtic history. It's so, it's, it's not well known at all. It's absolutely fascinating. And you're all just going to love it. I know you are. So uh, there's a couple of places I can point to you to for now. There's the excellent uh, Irish history podcast. I think it's called The History of Ireland, actually. I would double check that. I can't remember. Um, Which is absolutely fantastic and covers some of this Dark Age history. Um, There is also uh, the History of England podcast. Um, But in fact, I believe that he also has a separate one which focuses... Um, on the Saxons, but does cover, obviously, all the the people the Saxons rubbed against, so that's very interesting. Um, Other than that, I'm afraid it's a little thin on the ground, so that's, that's, you know, these are the gaps that I'm looking to fill, and uh, I'm hoping to be able to provide some additional content uh, to reward the patience of those uh, (laughs) slogging themselves through the chronological episodes, which, at the moment, are not exactly coming out very quickly. Um, On that, uh, I am trying to put together all this additional content. I'm trying to put together a Patreon, which I have launched, um, because I find myself in a position where the work demands in producing these episodes, particularly the research portion um, and somewhat the editing portion, is placing a lot of demands on my time. Uh, I have a job, I have two children, and my wife's just started university, uh, and it. I also have a number of other hobbies which I maintain uh, for leisure, um, which, you know, I may upload some videos of on the YouTube channel. And it's just placing so many demands on my time, and the sponsorship opportunities at the moment seem to be fairly thin on the ground. I think you need to reach at least consistently a thousand downloads per episode and we're nearly there um but not quite shout out to all you out there uh also itunes reviews that always helps uh as well but i am hoping to attract some patreon listeners um because there will be exclusive content which will only be found on patreon uh which will be for people who can't wait effectively until we get to a later period um i've had a request to cover uh i believe it was the history of the isle of man uh certainly the history of wales and cornwall there seems to be a lot of demand for these things and i'm more than happy to do them but we are far 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 away i even had uh, a request to explain the uh, the politics of Northern and Southern Ireland, which is a hornet's nest, but I am more than happy to delve into it, um, particularly since I don't have a dog in the fight. But if you guys are not satisfied with where we are at the moment and how long it's going to take to get there, then my solution for you is support the podcast in any way that you can, and you will have the ability through that support to request specific content but thank you all your support has been amazing particularly over the last couple of months uh downloads went through the roof uh they've tailed off just as i'm recording this but that's probably because people are getting impatient waiting for a new episode that's understandable um so i thank you all again and i will see you next time on the celtic history podcast